Bienvenidos, and welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show. I am your host, Matthew Miranda, coming to you on about as Tuesday, a Tuesday as ever did Tuesday. It is overcast in New York. We're getting about a half a foot today of that very heavy, wet snow, which is just the worst to shovel. It's a very Tuesday day. Um, and so in light of that and in light of it seeming like this is going to be another one of those winters that carries on just a bit longer than you really would like it to, we will look ahead to baseball in today's episode. And due to that fact, let me introduce you to today's baseball guest. Today's guest is making their second appearance ever on the Jack and the Sports Show. You know him from his work for 538 and for Baseball Prospectus. You may not know him. As an apparent, Bobby Abreu is a Hall of Famer truther, which we will definitely have to ask him about while he's here. Welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show, Brian Menendez. Brian, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing so good. Uh, last time we talked, I was uh, recording from an empty house in Georgia, preparing for my move to Seattle. And yes. uh, now I've been here for uh, a year and a half. I'm a full-on full on Seattleite now. And it's actually sunny here, which is uh, which is interesting. I visited Seattle a few years ago in the summer. I was in Washington and Oregon for about a month and everybody we ran, it was the most glorious, glorious trip. It was perfect. The weather was like immaculate every day. And everybody told us like, it's never this sunny. I don't know how you guys got so lucky, but it's never ever this sunny. And I find it ironic that you're, you're in Seattle today. And it's like, there's a literally, it's like there's a sun in development in the room just over your shoulder so <laughs> so bright and warm and beautiful um so you yeah, are liking when, it out there Seattle's working out for you it's it's great you know i start every morning with a 10 mile hike um i bleed kombucha now and mm. i uh just oh. recently entered a domestic partnership with my subaru so um you, you can say that <laughs> you can say the things <laughs> pretty well yeah i like to see this very good very good you have to you have to get through six months of 4 p.m sunsets but the summers in seattle are pretty uh pretty hard to beat so yeah nice good deal very good deal glad to hear about that um what's a check-in with you every like 18 months or so and make it like an art project <laughs> now in the world um yeah speaking of world let's start by talking about the world baseball classic um, Let's do it. Least, I think the fifth edition of the tournament. Um, some very exciting moments already so far. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but first, I'm just curious, as someone who follows the game as closely as closely as you do, if there are any particular um, players or teams or matchups that you find especially interesting um, as possibilities at this stage of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, first off, I want to say that I, I just, I love the World Baseball Classic so much. I think it's just such good, wholesome baseball. Um, I've been to so many games. I grew up playing baseball. I've been to the World Series. I've been to playoff games. Um, I can tell you that the World Baseball Classic is a, it's an experience from a fan that's you just you can't beat it. Um, if any baseball fans listening or any sports fans in general listening, if, if going to a world baseball classic game is not on your bucket list, it needs to be on there because it is really that much fun. Um, I will say for this particular world baseball classic, this has probably been the most fun 
that I've had watching. I, I haven't had the chance to go to any of the games because, you know, I live in Seattle. Uh, previously, I lived in Florida, so I was able to go to Miami for some of the mm-hmm. games. Um, but, you know, it's it's been – it seems like every country has brought their best squad. Um, every team seems like they have, like, their own unsung hero. I'm just going to raffle off a few that I wrote down. You know, obviously Shohei Otani has been unbelievable. I think Japan looks – completely unbeatable um Mm. even like the u.s or the dominican republic i don't i just i don't see you know a a lot of the foreign teams sometimes lack pitching depth but japan is not one of those teams with you know they have shohei otani they have yu darvish and they have roki sasaki Mm. that's just that's just unreal um some other teams like uh like taiwan for example can i say taiwan on this podcast or do i have to say (laughs) i can say taiwan say whatever you want on this pod Okay, <laughs> um, because you know, for the purposes of the World Baseball Classic, they're Chinese Taipei, but I'm going to say Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, they've looked really good in this tournament. Um, Yu Chang, somebody who played for four different Major League Baseball organizations last year, is kind of became their hero. Was the MVP of that pool. Um, Anthony Santander for uh, Team Venezuela has been really good. Venezuela's off to a three and zero start. Love to see that. Uh, Randy Rosarena for Team Mexico, continuing his like. I don't know what happens to him in the big game, but he just he just mm-hmm, becomes mm-hmm. the best player in the sport. Um, Harry Ford for Team uh, Britain, uh, first round pick uh, from 2021 for the Mariners, uh, one of their top prospects, just absolutely raking against Major League Pitching. Um, Alfredo Espanye, one of my favorite Cuban players. Um, nobody has more home runs in the World Baseball Classic than Alfredo Espanye. He has seven. He's 36 years old. He's still hitting. He's a short king. He's five seven. Um, we love to see it. Um, he's if there if there is ever a World Baseball Classic Hall of Fame, I think he has to be one of the first ones ever inducted. Um, like he's that. just been doing his thing. In his fifth tournament, he's still he's still doing his thing. Um, some of my favorites, though, besides those, uh, Andre Satoria, uh, pitcher for the Czech Republic, a an electrician by day, um, goes in against Team Japan. Doesn't even doesn't throw a pitch harder than seventy nine miles an hour. Strikes out Shohei Otani, so he will have that. He will have that forever. Um, also, um, Duque Eber for uh, Team Nicaragua comes in against the Dominican Republic. Strikes out Juan Soto, Julio Rodriguez, uh, and Rafael Devers. Has never played outside of the Nicaraguan league before. He leaves the stadium that day. Signs a deal with the Detroit Tigers. So yeah, I saw that. These That's are amazing. just kind of. Yeah, these are just kind of the stories that come about only in the World Baseball Classic. And I just, I love that so much. You have players who are like major league MVPs to uh, foreign league journeymen to, you know, minor league players who are facing major league talent for the first time to players like, you know, guys who have day jobs and they just play in these international tournaments. Um, so, like I said, it's a lot of fun. It, it almost, it almost, helps you forget about major league baseball's exploitation of the global South almost. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I said, it's just, it's, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. And uh, I'm having a blast just being a spectator. Do you have any sense of whether or not <clears throat> MLB itself as an industry has come around at all towards liking the WBC? There was a lot of initial conflict about, trying to stage it and the timing and the concern about, you know, what's the value to the sport versus what it's getting out of it. And 
that's one way to view the event. But like you're saying, and I think for a lot of people, it's not MLB is is unrelated to this. This is a separate thing, and I'm I'm especially intrigued, I think, by the fact that it seems to be an event that's really driven by passion from the laborers, like the players themselves really care about right. it, and the fans really care about it. The consumers and the laborers care about it. I get the sense more than than the industry has maybe figured out yet how to monetize it fully. Is there any sense you've gotten as to whether or not WBC is more embraced by baseball at large as an industry, or is it still something that it happens, but they're, they're still trying to figure out where it fits in for them? Um, I think, I think with this tournament, like I said, I think this has been the most, the most fun, the most competitive, I think best baseball watching experience of all the tournaments so far. Um, so I think the result of this tournament may, uh, May may bring may bring it a little bit more forth into the mainstream. I think the you know six or seven year break really hurt, um, but also I think the owners just need to come around on it. I think that's the I think that's the biggest thing. We talked we we heard Mark DeRosa very publicly say that he struggled to um, you know get his pitching in order, especially like when they lost super big to Team Mexico because he felt like there were some pitchers that he either couldn't take out or couldn't bring in and. He's Mm. having struggled because he's, he's having to, he's having to, you know, sympathize with the teams or with a, with a player, with the player's parent teams. Um, So these guys got to get their reps, you know, like if, if, you know, Brady Singer is just getting absolutely hammered, like he was against team Mexico, you know, you want to, you still want to make sure that he's getting his pitches in. Whereas you can see that the other teams are playing to win. Um, So and and the the other teams generally have less have less major league representation, so it's easier for them to do that. Um, so I think I think the biggest thing is just going to be are the team owners going to come around on this? And I think once that happens, um, I think I think that's going to be when the the sport as a whole kind of gets behind it. Do you find watching this like obviously there's you as a baseball fan, but like when I watch the World Cup, for example, like I really love soccer as a game, but at some point I can't separate my politics from my rooting interest. If I'm watching, you know, if, if Senegal is playing great Britain, like I'm probably rooting for the upset. Um, and I know in this tournament, like I don't, I don't care who great Britain, like normally teams that are new and especially new to a sport, like I, you know, you want to root for them. There's this cool runnings vibe, like, Oh, great Britain's playing baseball. Like let's root for them. But like, I don't care. Every game that Britain plays against anybody, I find myself rooting against them. I was not just happy as a Puerto Rican to see Puerto Rico's success like so far, but particularly to do what they did against Israel. Like, did I get a little bit of extra joy out of it? I did. <laughs> I'm curious. Like, does that enter into if you if you sit down and you're like, oh, okay, Italy's playing um, Japan today. Like, is there any kind of mental balancing where you try to figure out? who am I rooting for based on just what is just in the world or is it all baseball to you? Um, listen, I, I, I just, I like watching competitive baseball. I love the playoff atmosphere. Um, as far as, as far as the politics go, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm first generation American of Cuban parents. So, you know, growing up, I was propagandized into a lot of like right-wing rhetoric and, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of Cuban Americans don't root for the Cuban team. They root for the U S team. Um, this year for the first time, I find myself really being a fan of the Cuban team and it could have, it could, 
it could have a lot to do with the fact that they have some more major league representation, I think, for the first time, which was very interesting uh, from like a geopolitical standpoint for that yeah. to be allowed to happen. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm finding myself being okay with rooting for Cuba. And also my politics have changed a lot in the last six years. I think we talked about that a little bit mm-hmm. the last time I was on or, or maybe maybe uh, after the recording. But um, I, think, I, think my, I think my politics are a little bit less in play other than what I touched on before. It's like, you know, the, the, the problematic nature of, you know, the exploitation of major league baseball in foreign countries, especially poor foreign countries. But I think the difference is between, so for example, when major league baseball sets up these leagues in the Dominican Republic or in Venezuela or now like Colombia or some of these new countries, when the world baseball classic happens, those players are playing for those countries. Whereas if like, say, France recruits a player from an African country in the World Cup, that player is playing for France rather than like Ghana or Senegal, like you mentioned, or something like that. So I think there's like a big difference there. Um, but I mean, that's not to say that it makes it better, per se. <laughs> yeah, better is a tricky word to use with MLB. Um, yeah. Speaking of better, or attempts at embettering things, a number of rule changes go into effect this year. Um Chief among them, the pitch clock, larger bases, a ban on the shift suddenly. Um, I am curious about if there are any rule changes that you were especially either pro or con, and if your mind has changed on any of them. Um, there's there's two that I have strong feelings about, but I want to hear um, when you first heard about the changes, were you... Because to me, I just read... I'm very cynical about this because I feel like if baseball really is about we need to shorten time, then just cut a fucking commercial from each half inning and bingo, problem yeah. solved. But if you want to tinker with the game itself, like I'm, I definitely lean more towards like I'm the person who will say for years, like if they bring a DH to the National League, that's it. I'm out. I'm not following it anymore. And then they do. <laughs> and like, hey, the Mets are good. So I find a reason like to stay with it. Um, I wasn't really in support of the pitch clock thing, but. I haven't heard anyone complaining so far about games being quicker. Um, what has your experience been in terms of what you expected, what you hope, what you fear as far as the rule changes go? So there are two two of the rules that I really love. There are two of the rules that I really don't love. And then there are two rules that I'm kind of indifferent about. Um, so I love the pitch clock. I've been openly team pitch clock for as long as I've, you know, been on Twitter. Um, so I used to live, I don't know. Have you ever been to a minor league game? Yeah. Okay. So the minor leagues have had a pitch clock for a number of years. Uh, in 2017 and 2018, I used to live in Memphis and, uh, there's not a major league team there, but there are the Memphis Redbirds who are the, um, triple A affiliate for the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, and the first time I went to that game where they did have the 15 second pitch clock, um, the game, the pace of the game was noticeably faster and it may not make a difference like if you're watching the game, but like sitting in the stands, I almost felt like I couldn't get out of my seat because I didn't want to miss anything. So mm. the action is noticeably faster. The pace of the game is noticeably faster. Um, and once I saw that, I was sold. I was hooked on the pitch clock. Um, another rule I really like is the uh, the bigger bases, um, which right. number one has made for like pretty good Twitter content with people like. <laughs> like photoshopping the size of the bases to be like super big. <laughs> um, but like, I, I like the injection of the action or the possibility of it. Um, 
I, I, I want to see like where teams go as far as like maybe prioritizing guys who can steal more bases and things like that. Um, catcher pop time is going to be more important. Like um, maybe that, maybe that becomes more important than like pitch framing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see like what the data says about that. Um, the two rules that I really don't like, one is the shift ban. Um, I love the shift. I love four man outfields. I love all of that weird stuff. Um, you did see, uh, something super fun against, uh, I think it was Joey Gallo where a team played with like two outfielders and then just brought one of them in to play that like shift second base position that used to be part of the shift. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, it's, it's all going to be like what the data is. It's going to be, it's going to be a cat and mouse game, right? The, the, the sport is just trying to create a little bit more equity between like the offense and defense. Cause the pitching pitching is technically defense and pitching has gotten so good now. Um, and I think the pitch clock is going to, um, I think something that maybe people won't realize about the pitch clock is maybe like all these pitchers won't be going max effort every pitch anymore. So maybe, maybe like velocities will come down, um, things like that. Um, the other rule that I'm not crazy about, and I don't, I don't hate it as much as I just don't understand why it's in place is the, the pickoff rule. Yeah. So basically says that the pitcher can only disengage with the rubber two times. And if they do it a third time, if they don't get the runner out, then he gets awarded a base. I, I don't really understand the need for that rule. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if pitchers stepping off the rubber too much really is a problem. I just, I just, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, as far as rules that I'm indifferent about, I mean the the auto runner on second base and extra innings. I, you know, it's fine. I guess I don't, I don't think it really adds. I don't think it really adds anything. Um, yeah. The only thing, the only thing I would change is if, like if we want to make, if we want to, if we want to speed up the game, maybe maybe start it in the 12th. I think I said this exact thing, same thing on mm. the last, last time I was on. Like, let's start it in the 12th. Good idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the pitching, uh, the position player pitching rule, I think it's like, if you're, you have to be like down by five or up by 10 or something like that. I'm, I'm probably getting that wrong for a position player to pitch. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think the novelty of position players pitching uh, has kind of worn off a lot over the last few years. I, I do like sometimes seeing uh, what a position player can do. Like sometimes they'll like throw a knuckleball or sometimes you'll see a pitcher, like a position player come in and like throw 95. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of fun, but what's not fun is when they're just throwing like 42 and the radar gun doesn't even register that like, that's, that's not fun. That's not, nobody wins when that happens. <laughs> yeah, no, it's gotta be entertaining for that. When it's entertaining, it's really good. Um but if it's not, yeah, it's just kind of a, a slog to watch. Um, yeah. Two thoughts on the rule changes. Um, one, so I am a admitted. I love. I was a catcher when I played. I love catchers. I love catching. I love that part of the game. Um, I might be one of the only freaks out there who. I agree with you that I didn't see at all the need for the throwover rule. Um, I don't know if somebody just took crowds booing throwovers like way too seriously and decided to legislate against it or something, but. I love pitch outs. It's a, a long kind of forgotten part of the game. I feel like at least from when I started watching, like in the eighties. So if this will bring back pitch outs and you see a lot more catchers now throwing behind the runner at first base, like awesome. I think that's exciting. I still don't quite see the need for the, the pick pick off limit. Um, but if it brings more of that other variety, like I miss the variety of baseball so much. I miss watching two teams that could play each other and have like, like it'll probably never be this extreme again, but in the eighties when you had like 
a Whitey Herzog team and the way that they played as far as bunting and stealing and advancing runners versus, I don't know, an Earl Weaver team just waiting for a three-run homer. Uh, like, it's really interesting stylistic clashes. So I think that's cool. And I think, um, do you remember a movie that came out, like, God, maybe like 15, 20 years ago now called House of a Thousand Corpses? I'm not familiar, sorry. <laughs> okay. Look, you're not missing anything? Um, you can probably guess from the title. <laughs> the genre and the general premise of what the film is about. Um, sure. When House of a Thousand Corpses came out, I was really excited initially because as you can, it's not a movie where like the good guy wins. And I thought, okay, cool. I've never seen that. Cause every time you go to see a movie, there's usually a villain and a hero and the hero wins and you're used to the formula and you think you want to see something different. When I got the movie, it's so dark and it's so like, I learned about myself, like, no, I, I don't actually want that. Like, I thought I wanted that. I don't want that. I feel the same way this year about the shifts being banned. I'm not pro-shift. I have never really liked it that much. And when I heard, okay, they're moving to ban it, I thought, great. Like, I like seeing a ball go up the middle be a single. I like seeing a lefty rewarded for turning on a fastball and ripping it. But... It's going to be weird. It's going to be really, really weird watching like Bryce Harper come up to hit. And everybody knows how you probably should defend him if you want to get him out. And you can't because it's against the rule. It's just something there's I'm not I, I'm not saying yet that like I'm against it or whatever, but I've, I've, there's something weird to me about watching a baseball game and watching a team legislated against taking whatever approach they think is the most effective to like getting a player out or winning. I don't think I've ever seen that before. And that particular quality weirds me out, even though I don't really love the shift in general. Um, there's something weird to me about legislating to a team. No, you can't do this thing that we all know works. I don't know. I, I can you think yeah, of any I'm other not... example of that happening? I can't. Yeah. I mean, not, not, not in baseball for sure. I think, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely aligned with you on that. But I, I mean, again, like I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big data nerd, and I love the shift and I love seeing all that. But you know, it, it, it definitely, it definitely feels strange. But listen, I mean, like if if the players want it, and you know, the league feels like it's going to be best for the sport, um, we'll see what happens. It could, it could, it could be a net zero. I think, like, I think the only thing that we'll see an increase of is like singles. And I guess, I mean, if you if you're looking for action, you know. I guess, you know, couldn't hurt. Especially if you're thinking is that you can supercharge the other rules so that more singles are now leading to stolen bases and people in motion. Um, sure. Speaking of people in motion, Trevor Bauer, um, who was <laughs> released by the Dodgers after serving a year and a half suspension for violating Major League Baseball's domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy, signed a one-year, $4 million deal um, with the Yokohama Dana, I don't know if I'm saying that right, it's D-E and then capital N-A, Dana Bay Stars. So Bauer signed with the Japanese League in Yokohama. Um, <coughs> the $4 million that they are paying him will be on top of the $22.5 million the Dodgers still owe him um, for the season. They released him, but he's still on their books for a year. Um, there's obviously a lot around this issue. There's a and it touches on the like, you know, Major League Baseball is a distinct industry from other industries. So I don't 
I don't like the usual, like, hey, at my job, if I did this, it's a different industry. Everything about it is different. Like, it's a completely different job, reality, labor circumstance, and whatnot. The thing that really interests me about this and the Bauer story is, is this a sign, like, is this the policy working? So he was, he was charged um, with, I think, in civil court. Um, with these offenses, he violated the policy according to the sport. Um, he's not banished from the sport, but he's effectively banished. Like I have to assume Trevor Bauer didn't get a contract from a major league team, not because nobody would have given him one. Um, this is all speculation now. There's no way to know, but I'm guessing there is some team out there that if they could have had Trevor Bauer for the league minimum, they probably would have. There's probably some internal pressure to like, we don't want to sign this guy. Is this the, the policy working then? Like, is this, and, and here's what I always run up against. I, I am no fan of Trevor Bauer at all. This is just what I always run up against. I think of in my own family history, I think of my, you know, people in my past, older generations who were, did horrible things to people, um, you know, abused family members, um, when when Michael Vick came out with the dog fighting, I had a grandfather in Puerto Rico who would raise chickens for cockfighting. Different culture, different time, different world, whatever. When Vic got in trouble for cock for dog fighting, a lot of people felt like that's it. Like he should never be allowed back in the NFL. He should never be allowed to play football again because look at what he did. And it made me think like, is that analogous to my grandfather? Like if we decide cockfighting is a horrible thing. Should he have been banned from like his way of earning a living? Should family on the other? I don't know where Trevor Bauer's punishment is supposed to lie, because as far as I can tell, he hasn't criminally been. I'm sorry, he hasn't criminally been convicted of anything, as far as I can tell. It's a civil thing. Um, he's not a likable person to a lot of people, but there's a lot of shit in there. I'm. I'm I don't even know where this question begins. Um, I guess the first question, the first question would be, is the is the policy working? Given that its first major test subject is now out of Major League Baseball, is, um, does that mean it's working? I, I don't know. What do you think? You know, it's 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 tough to say that it's working, and there are a couple reasons why. Um, Mike Clevenger is somebody who had arguably more evidence against him is not seeing one game for a suspension. Um, I think that Trevor Bauer should have served some, some time, but I think the reason he's out of major league baseball is a lot of the other things that you mentioned. Um, also, I know this, I, I, I think this may have been like before this time, but a Chapman has had no problem finding a job. Um, and he used a gun. Mm-hmm. So I think there's definitely more steps that major league baseball can take. Um, and I, I, I'm let's not think for a second that if Trevor Bauer goes to Japan and dominates this year, that he's not going to wear a major league uniform next year. I um, assume in a year he's back as long as he has a decent season. I assume he's back. Exactly. Exactly. I think everybody's just kind of waiting to see if he's still good. Um, right. And uh, I think Whoever whoever uh, whoever gets him is going to have to deal with a with a blowback. I think the difference between 
Trevor Bauer and some of these other players is like, Trevor Bauer just hasn't shown any remorse. He's just like, he's, and it, this isn't just like an isolated incident. Like he's been very known for like harassing people on Twitter. Um, you know, his, his on-field antics, you know, I, I'm all about passion and emotion in the game, but like the dude is just, he's just mad cringe. Like I just, <laughs> he's just like, he's just a tough watch. Um, and I think some of that, I think some of that supersedes how, like what he can bring as far as like value on the field. Um, and like you said, he just like, th- there, have, there have been a few guys like pitcher specifically who talk about like how good of a teammate he was, but like by and large, I don't think he's a very well-liked player in baseball, not by front offices, not by coaches. Um, and that goes all the way back to college. So it actually goes back even farther. Cause I was reading about him earlier today. And when Bauer was like a kid and would um, practice like pitching, it's the, he was obsessed with pitching even as a child. But like even in his little league ages, like he was alone. He would get bullied actually because he was such a like baseball obsessed, apparently unlikable nerd. Um, that just seems yeah. to follow this dude around. He's a, I think, I think this has as much to do with the fact that he's just not liked. And I have to tell you, like, as someone who grew up like around the game and around baseball players and baseball, you really have to be an asshole for baseball and as a whole <laughs> to decide that you are unlikable. You really have to be an asshole. Like that's a high, it's no, a high bar to clear. <laughs> really? I mean, Lenny Dykstra it's has a, a lot of friends in baseball and Trevor Bauer does not. Um, I'll take it to a bit of a happier place, at least a happier one for me. I think the last time we did the show, I don't remember if Steve Wilpon still owned the Mets, Stephen Fred. Um, but Steve Cohen is the Mets owner now. And I'm curious what you as a leftist make of Steve Cohen as a as an owner, because I know that I, as a leftist who is also a Met fan, happen to be very much in love with the guy. Um, <laughs> and baseball is the only sport where this comes into play because it's the only sport that does not have a salary cap. So <clears throat> I'm curious. It's been a really intriguing um, time under Cohen because – <clears throat> to hear all the other owners crying as much as they do about him tells me that he's doing something right. Because if that many of them are upset, he's obviously doing something right. I, it shouldn't come down to like just someone like the capitalist who can outcapitalize the rest of them. But um, you know, Ralph Nader wrote a a comedic novel about how basically only like the very very super rich could actually save the world from the rich, and I wonder if that's what you see with Steve Cohen, because I hear, you know, I hear complaints coming from here and there and you hear these anonymous sources and Steve Cohen is following the rules that the owners collectively bargained, um, that the owners in the past have been willing to put a work stoppage on in order to achieve. He's not breaking any rules. He's spending a ton of money, but he's allowed to spend a ton of money and he's spending according to you, the, the owners created and bargained these limits they signed the agreement that exists as the state of things. And all he's doing is living by the state of things and they can't stand it. So I love Cohen not only because my team is awesome now and hasn't been for like a while and they have like, they have money and they haven't had money for a while. I mean, to go from, you cannot imagine what it is to go from the Mets as a kid to like, the Wilpon ownership to now this, but just 
Do you love Steve yeah, Cohen? I mean, if, uh, I, <laughs> I, I hate to use the words good and billionaire in the same sentence, but <laughs> what I will say is that um, it's been a lot of fun, not just him, but I mean, AJ Preller as well. Um, it's been a lot of fun to kind of watch them just throw a lot of money around. And uh, I think it's, I think it's going to be cool to watch some of these guys. I mean, this is more of a Padres problem. Well, I mean, I guess it's a Mets problem too, because they, have Justin Verlander and Max Scherz on the payroll, but to uh, see guys getting paid, you know, $30 million in their forties, I think it's pretty, uh, pretty mm-hmm. awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Especially the way that like, you know, some of these uh, minor league and first major league contracts are kind of structured. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think what Steve Cohen is doing is, is ultimately good for the sport. Um, and I would hate for, I would hate for the next CBA to do something to hinder that. Um, I'm not, a fan of a salary cap. Um, I'm also not a fan of a salary floor either. Um, because I, I know like that's what the NBA has. Um, but I think, I think the next step and we'll see, and and this, this will really kind of formulate my opinion on, uh, uh, on Steve Cohen. Um, you saw the blue Jays do this a little bit, but like, you know, I think how minor leaguers get traded, whether it's like guaranteeing them housing or guaranteeing them a livable wage Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, paying players earlier in their careers, not gaming their service time. So like, we don't call them up, you know, until like May 1st or we're or trying to save them from the super two deadline. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are going to be the moves that potentially if he makes, will set him apart from other owners. Um, mm-hmm. And I would like to see him do those things before I say, you know, this guy is good or he's not mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know, how, how he's made his money has been problematic and very, you know, widely debated on whether it was ethical or not. Um, And I think another difference between between him and other owners is that like his wealth is not tied as much to the team. So he's owning this team as a fan rather than a, you know, capitalist or a profiteer or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The point you made also before about, um, players and points where they become eligible like for arbitration and new deals Jeff McNeil this offseason signed um, I think a four year $50 million deal and it's his first big post arbitration eligible and like I was really torn in that story because part of me I'm very happy for Jeff McNeil and he's talked very openly about um, how he's kind of an anxious person and how this um, helps, you know, helps him relax as a person he can take care of his family Jeff McNeil I think is 33 years old and it's very like I was shocked, but it's it's part of it's one of the hallmarks of the industry, like you're saying. Like Jeff McNeil, I don't think either came up till he was 26 or didn't start his his eligibility till very late in the process. And you see more and more of that. Like you're saying, I would love to see um, Steve Cohen apply his wealth, not only because it's competitively advantageous, but I think because it's just ethically smart. Um, be the organization that puts players first. And treats them the best, and and that will buy you incomparable um, goodwill among the labor force. I would think. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 issues that Major League Baseball has, you know, run parallel to you know any other industry at large. Like it's 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 a matter it's a matter of leverage, right? You're 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 drafted by a team, and you have no say on you know who your employer is for the mm-hmm. first six, sometimes seven years of your Major League career, and then. Hopefully, if you're below a certain age, you make big money, but sometimes you hit free agency when you're 33, 34, because they didn't want to call you up till you're 27, because maybe, maybe, maybe you were blocked by someone, or 
you know, like in the case of like a Chris Bryant, for example, they game to service time so they can have him for an extra year. Um, so there, you know, there, there's always things like that. And there, there's a problem of minor leaguers. Like there's, you know, um, I think this changed in 2020, but like before that there were 50 rounds in the draft and the vast majority of those guys don't play for the organization past a year. And, you know, they're making maybe $1,200 a month if they're lucky, you know? So I think I would like to see changes on, on that front, um, as well. Um, and yeah, like a guy like Jeff McNeil, like you said, I think, uh, he's not quite 33. I think he'll be like 31 in a month, but I mean, even still, like oh, if he, if he, which is still like relatively young, but if he goes to free agency at 32, 33, you know, maybe, maybe he gets that same deal, but that's only assuming if, if he's still good, you know, after his age 32, 33 season, which, you know, he may not be. And then he has to sign like mm-hmm. a series of one year contracts with different teams, you know? Mm-hmm. So the world of baseball was pretty stunned in the offseason when the Mets, after already spending a lot of money, um, signed an enormous deal with Carlos Correa, um, which then obviously fell through. He ended up in Minnesota. Um, there was a lot of kind of hateful shot and Freud directed at the Mets at that point, which I took as a good sign because every dollar that they did not spend on Correa is going to be free up for whoever the next big stud is that comes along that Steve Cohen decides he wants to go after. Do you have any sense, and I know this is absolutely the asshole prerogative of the big market sports fan who's like not content just with winning 95 games next year, but now has to look ahead, but I'm going to do it. Um, Are there any players that you see, star prospect type young players or guys who've already arrived who are young who could be um, on the radar soon, on the move? Um, Someone at the Mets or even maybe another team, but just... Um, any kind of prominent hot prospect player out there in Major League Baseball that, for whatever reason, we see it every few years. I mean, you know, Juan Soto, I think, was the last example of, of the big, big player to make that move. Um, anyone you can see who might come out as, as the next big enticing player on the move? Um, I think for the Mets that might be tough um, because I don't know if they have the prospect capital to – pull off a trade like that if something potentially arises um i mean i think they'll definitely be assuming juan soto hits free agency i think they'll definitely be a player obviously um we know shohei otani is going to be a free agent after the end of the season mm-hmm. um i you know depending on how well max scherzer pitches this year i'm sure they'll want to bring him back um if you know assuming he you know wants to come back i'm sure that the mets will make room for him um so yeah, I mean, I th- I think that the Mets are going to be a player for every major free agent that comes along. Um, next year's free agent class is pretty weak. Um, the only the only guys on there, are like like I said, Scherzer, Otani, and uh, Javier Baez hasn't hasn't opt out. So I mean, he had a really terrible year last year. But listen, if he bounces back and thinks he can make more money, you know mm-hmm. that could be that could be something that is an option. I mean, who wouldn't love Lindor Baez in, in, in the same infield for, you know, an extended period of time. That would be just so much fun. Um, but yeah, it's tough to say the trade front, like I said, cause I don't know, I don't know if they have like the prospect capital pull it off like the Padres did. Um, but yeah, it should be interesting to see the Mets as major players uh, come, come every, come every off season for free agents. Mm-hmm. Last question I have for you today, Bobby Abreu, Hall of Famer. Um, I'm going to assume you've made this case before. Give me your Bobby Abreu Hall of Fame elevator pitch argument. 
Yeah. So great player, great, great player. And and I'm I'm curious, especially because I, I want to see what it tells me about your notion of a Hall of Famer, because there's different ideologies I think that people have about what a Hall of Famer is. Some people have the just the eyeball tests, like when you watch this player, did you feel you were watching a Hall of Famer? And some people do more of the statistical comparison kind of thing, either comparison to their era or to general standards that apply to Hall of Famers. Um, is this, did you feel this, like, is this something that came about after Abreu retired? Did you have strong feelings while he was still playing, mostly with the Phillies and the Yankees, I think, um, about, yeah, I'm watching a Hall of Famer right now? Or, like, how did this come about for you? Um, so... I don't, I don't love the question, like, do you feel like you're watching a Hall of Famer? Because I think that's, like, I think that's extremely personal. Yeah. Um, so, like, for example, like, I'm, I grew up a big, I mean, I still am a big Tampa Bay Rays fan. So, like, you know, somebody out, somebody who has very limited time watching, say, Evan Longoria, for example, might not say that they felt like they were watching a Hall of Famer, whereas, like, I would say that I was because I watched him play for so long and I witnessed some of his biggest moments. So like, right. I don't, I don't really put a lot of weight into questions like that, but as far as like uh, Bobby Abreu goes, uh, I'm going to tackle this a couple of different ways. Um, right. Number one, if we look at like his triple crown numbers, right? He's a career 291 hitter, right? I don't put a lot of stock into batting average, but I know a lot of people out there do. Um, he was a, I'm looking at his fan graphs page right now. He was a uh, 20 homers, 20 stolen bases. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. Okay. I think that should carry some weight. Almost 300 home runs, exactly 400 stolen bases. Uh, career WRC plus of 129, which means he was 29% better than the league average for his career. That's not even talking about his prime, Right. 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 And if we looked at some of the like some of the more advanced metrics, I mean, clearly, I'll admit Bobby Abreu would be a big haul guy, right? Um, but I tweeted something out um, a couple months ago. So when I look at somebody who, if if I'm trying to make a case for their like their Hall of Fame uh, eligibility or like worthiness, right? The first thing I look at is like their career war and I try to like look at their peak as well, right? I know wars and everything, it's like it's it's an approximation of a player's overall contribution, right? So it's a good place to start the discussion. Again, if you look at his career war, it's under 60, so it's like a little underwhelming. But if you look at his peak years, and this is what I tweeted out. So I try to look for if a player to me has at least five seasons of five war or better, then we can start we can start from there to build a case, right? Hmm. On the 2022 Hall of Fame ballot, there was only uh, two players who had more five war seasons than Bobby Abreu. One of them is Alex Rodriguez, who, of course. The other was Andrew Jones. And the third was Bobby Abreu with seven. He had seven seasons of five war or better and three seasons of over six so he didn't get like the hall of fame or excuse me the like the mvp recognition that he should have but this is a player who put together seven all-star to mvp ish type seasons and that i think to me is a hall of famer like i said he's he definitely is a big hall guy for sure for sure (laughs) but you know if i'm looking at players like who 
arguably have better cases. Like you look at somebody like Gary Sheffield with 500 home runs, or if you look at somebody like Jeff Kent, who, you know, didn't make it in his final ballot, but a lot of people think that he's a hall of famer. I think if you look at the overall body of work, uh, Andy Pettit's another one. Um, If you look at the overall body of work, I think Bobby Abreu blows those guys away. So if those guys have a hall Mm -hmm. of fame case, why aren't we talking as much about Bobby Abreu? And I think that this year was his only, was only his fourth ballot. And he's, uh, I think he went from like 10 to 12% the last few years. And I think he jumped up to 18%. So I think he's Mm -hmm. trending in the right direction. I think he's going to more be in the way of like somebody like a Larry Walker or like a Scott Rowland or like a blur, like a Burt Blylevin, some of these guys who really gained traction on like their seventh, eighth ballot. Um, and I think he ultimately will get in because we have a new generation of voters who are coming into the fold every year. Um, and I think this, this conversation is happening by, you know, with a lot of people like in my space, like me in particular, who are, you know, shouting from the rooftops that, you know, this guy deserves a case. Um, so I think as the years go by and this discussion keeps happening and some of these players like fall off the ballot, like the ballot's going to be, you know, the ballot's going to be pretty crowded next year. I think, you know, Adrian Beltry gets in. I think obviously like whenever Albert Pujols is on the ballot, he'll get in too. So, you know, a lot of the obvious guys are kind of going to get pushed out. I think Billy Wagner gets in next year. Um, I think Todd Helton as well. Um, cause I think it was only Fred McGriff and I think, um, Scott Rowland this year. Um, so I think some of those guys will fall off too. Uh, or not fall off. I think we'll get inducted eventually. Um, so that'll leave room for somebody like Bobby Abreu. Bonus question. Do you expect Andrew Jones will get in? Um, body of work. I think, I think he's, I think he's a slam dunk. I think the problem is that he's got to get in there. He aged so poorly and so Mm -hmm. rapidly that I think that people, I think people like, remember the back half of his career and him being so bad. And I think that's kind of fair. Um, I think like offensively, he didn't have as many good years as somebody as, as like people might think like his, you know, his, his thing was his defense. He's one of the best center fielders you've ever seen. Um, I think there's also some off the field issues there that people are, are putting a lot of weight into as they should. Right. I think that's fair. Um, I think that's a lot of the reasons why, why Gary Sheffield also isn't getting, you know, the recognition we already know, we already know why Kurt Schilling, you know, didn't get in. We already know why Roger Clemens didn't get in Barry Bonds, all of these guys. Right. So I think it's fair to, I think it's fair to put some stock into the off the field issues. Um, But again, I think if I'm looking at, I think if I'm looking at body, body of work, I think Andrew Jones is uh, an absolute slam dunk hall of famer for sure. Well, that's exciting because I watched that dude play all the time for years and um, like you said, against the Mets, <laughs> a lot of it against the Mets, but that's also around the time where a lot of Braves games were still on TBS and they were also just in the postseason all the time, always in the, and usually deep in the playoffs. So I saw Andrew Jones a lot. And I mean, he was, while he was playing, he was like, it was a blessing to watch him play defense, like offense. He, he wasn't my type. He was, you know, slugger. Um, not a high average with hits per pop had some speed, especially early on. But I mean, there are a few players like my big hall of fame case is Keith Hernandez. I think he belongs in the hall of fame. And to me, he's a similar I, case. I would agree with that. He's a similar case to me to Andrew Jones in that. I mean, he's a far superior offensive player, 
than Andrew Jones was. But the rare case of just you don't usually watch baseball players to watch them play defense, particularly if they're not at, you know, shortstop, something like that. But Keith Hernandez was that way at first, and Andrew Jones was absolutely that in center field. Um, yeah, any 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 player who can <laughs> who can rip cigarettes in the dugout and uh, <laughs> put up the production that Keith Hernandez did, I think deserves <laughs> deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. We don't have enough stats today about smoking and, and baseball, but if we did, <laughs> Keith Hernandez would be right up there. Uh, <laughs> that's going to be all for this episode of the show. Um, I want to thank our guest again, Brian Menendez, for joining us. Brian, do you have any uh, anything you want to plug um, about work, life, just the world in general? Anything our audience should be looking out for or listening out for? Um. We're doing uh, season previews uh, by team over at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, Pakoda, our uh, projection system, should be live coming up soon. Um, I've written about some people that the projection system likes and doesn't like. You can read that on the site. Um, other than that, uh, I had a good time. Let's uh, let's try to do this uh, more often than every 18 months. <laughs> that would be cool. Um, if you move, let us know, and we'll definitely have you on again to see how the move is going for you since that is apparently what happens every time we have you on the show. <laughs> Something exciting is happening in the life of Brian Menendez. You can follow Brian on Twitter at BrianTalksBSB. That's literally BrianTalksBSB. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Matthew E. Miranda. Um, remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at Sports. Email any thoughts, questions, or suggestions you have jacobinsports at gmail.com subscribe to our patreon patreon.com slash jacobinsports consider the great evil of the world today the concentration of all that wealth in the hands of just a couple of knob jobs redistribute that wealth get five dollars a month into the hands of the jacobin sports show it's less for some tech bro to skim from you later on That's going to be all for this episode. Thank you to Brian. Thank you to everyone for joining us. Um, World Baseball Classic continues this week. If you need a team to root for, may I humbly suggest Puerto Rico. Um, Keep watching, and remember, MLB season also will come around soon. So we'll see you next week, everybody. Take care. Peace.